0: Logical Progression, Year 3, Chapter 9, Lesson 4. This is the first time that we have been able to do this. So a couple of things, uh, first of all I've decided that the time for the Dars uh, should just be I know that we've always said traditionally 8.15, it doesn't affect anyone here but online everyone kind of comes at 8.15 online and pro- actually probably they don't anymore, they probably know one thing is not going to happen is it's going to start 8.15. See the problem that we have here of course is that the, the people are praying their sunnah prayers I should say that the elders are praying their sunnah prayers because they will not listen to us and understand that it's sunnah to pray at home but they consist, insist on praying it in the masjid, which is their prerogative. The sunnah, the Prophet is to always pray sunnah and witr at home, at home. But, you know, some people will accept that, some people won't. And so that means that, to be honest, to start speaking all of them is not good. Uh, so that's why we've decided that from now on, online audiences should join us at 8.25. 8.25, okay? Okay. Um, And let's try and make that the new time going forward. And obviously, check times are going to change in a month or whatever when the hour goes forward and stuff. We'll work that out when it comes to it. Um, The other thing I was going to say is that today's a very interesting lesson. Alhamdulillah, no dirty lesson today, Yanni. Everything all done. All the gun behavior is finished now, once and forever. All of that crazy stuff, no hermaphrodites, no hashafah, no this, that. We can now be safe, bring the kids back in. Yanni, no problem. All right. and by the way... Stop eh? Abu, Dhar stop Abu Dhar is not going to bother coming now. I said, Abu Dhar said, no, it was all exciting. It was all interesting <laughs> for a couple of weeks. <laughs> we no, that, no, now we, now no. no now today it goes clean again, Abu Dhar is missing. <laughs> <laughs> uh? And uh, actually you'd be surprised. A lot of children, they do watch this online with their parents. And uh, often when I go to various cities uh, uh, around the world, yeah, and even Malaysia or Canada or whatever, and I meet some uh, parents... Who have actually very young children. And they, you know, say that's the guy who says all the crazy stuff about toilets. <laughs> I said that's okay, that's cool. You know what I'm saying? Everyone's gonna leave a legacy. I don't mind leaving a toilet legacy. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so let's have that text then, Shaz, so that we can uh, um, move on to the next part. So we're in those things which obligate a person. And so now we can move on to number 3 and 4 today. So what is... A ghusl is obligated according to the humbly madhab, according to Imam al-Hajawi's text, for a non-Muslim who enters Islam and then death. Okay, can we get rid of that? Because I just don't even want to see that first two points anymore. And get off the screen, banish it forever. So a non-Muslim, yes, who enters Islam and then death. Alright, so uh, Sheikh Imam al-Hajawi alayhi rahmatullah, he says, وَإِسْلَامُ كَافِرِمْ Today is really interesting because we're going to talk about some modern day issues, and then we're going to talk about life and where it starts to do with death. Uh, there's a lot of issues that come under death. What to do to do death? You have to determine what life is first, and that then has to go to the real right issue of of the the, the spirit, and when it's blown into the child and or to the, the fetus or whatever. Um, okay, then so. وَإِسْلَامُ كَافِرٍ Shaykh uh, Uthameen, he says, according to the Hanbalis, this is the third reason that obligates uh, ghusl. Okay? And basically, simply, that does isn't uh, whether a uh, uh, non-Muslim, uh, and the word here is being used is kafir. Okay? And the word kafir, of course, just so that you, you do know, um, kafir comes from the word to deny. Okay? to deny and to hide and to kind of push away and to dig, like, you know, bury. There is all of these, a farmer, for example, is sometimes referred to in this manner because the way that he sows his seed and he hides it. And so therefore, um, and it's almost, and of course you'll know that that, uh, that kufr as well, uh, when it's used in the noun sense, also means ingratitude. Someone who doesn't give thanks. So that also kind of makes sense. You know, someone who's putting the truth away or kind of hiding the fact that, you know, like they might, you know, someone might be given a gift and they don't want to kind of make it clear that they were given it, so they hide it from the public and they use it in private. That kind of thing. And you're hiding something away because for whatever reason. So all of these are, are the meanings behind uh, a kufr. And so the kafir is the one who hides the truth. The kafir is the one who's ungrateful for what Allah has given that person, the biggest sign actually of the presence and the existence and the proof of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are all of the the am the blessings that Allah has given to a person. So therefore, when a person rejects them, that's why we call him a kafir, because he's a rejecter of the blessing. So kafir here technically also means non-Muslim. Now I know that kafir is a very a loaded word, emotionally. Not Islamically. Islamically, we don't have Muslim. We did, you know, we don't have this kind of concept that you say, Ghair uh, Muslim is like translating backwards. So we have Muslim, non-Muslim. So if you translate backwards, it would be Muslim, Ghair Muslim. That's just not a phrase that we understand. It's kafir. Now, the problem, of course, and this is the first time we've come to the, use, the, I'm, I'm saying this because it's the first time we're talking about the word kafir in this class. Um, the problem is, you have some people who really insist on using it. They say Allah said it and the Prophet said it. So why are you kind of, you know, holding back? And then you've got others who are saying that you shouldn't say anything like that. We can say in English non-Muslim and, you know, why are you using such a, a word which it has some connotations? So in my personal opinion, and this is a matter of polit- politics, so my opinion is as good as anyone else's opinion. There's no, there's no, it's not the issue, okay? In my personal opinion. Um, I do believe that it is an emotional word And I do believe that it needs to be dealt with responsibly And I don't believe you're a traitor if you don't use the word kafir to describe a non-Muslim This is the world of PR and the world of soundbites and the world of trouble yani, You know, and, and, and also we need to be politically aware as well, historically aware as well That the word kafir is actually a very offensive word in other cultures as well Especially when it comes to the black-white kind of paradigm in South Africa, and so on. And I saw a video just the other day, subhanAllah, of this white kind of racist guy. And he went past the South African, a black South African, and they called him a kafir. Yep, you know, like they do, like that kind of... Is it Dutch? Is that kafir Dutch? Afrikaans, isn't it? Afrikaans, Afrikaans I mean. Afrikaans. Uh, you know, the guy just went ballistic. I mean, you know... It was clearly done as a racial slur. Okay? And I think it's, it's... It's as strong as the N-word. Okay? And so the guy just went ballistic. He just knocked him out. Just one punch, Boom. Just, you know, completely. It was, was quality. Yeah? <laughs> but that's the... You know... I mean... It's, it's, it's clear it's an offensive word. Also, in this country... I can tell you that I know one speaker... Or teacher who has been denied entry into this country for basically using this word in a lecture. That's actually how crazy the whole prevent program is, is going. No, you know, that's wrong. That's not that the whole... Some aspects of the prevent program, okay, uh, are that crazy that they are, are reading into the use of certain words far more than what it actually says. Now I'm not saying this because of prevent or because of this, I do believe that if a word is producing a very negative connotation, drop the word, use non-Muslim, and that's fine. But within, non-Muslim, within Muslims, there's no excuse, there's no excuse to play to some liberal sanitized Muslim kind of sentiment within the Muslims. No, use the word exactly as it is. and in non-Muslim kind of gatherings or in public gatherings use, non, use the word non-Muslim and that's fine and I also personally believe the same for Allah and God okay in fact I think that we should use God far more <coughs> I think that we should calm down on the word Allah and I don't think that you become a traitor and your al bara has gone and whatever if you do that it's just that the people that we're speaking to they refer to that and they understand that it fits their, their frame of reference they can feel it you know I was having a chat yesterday with a brother that I worked closely with uh, 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 before, I know very well. And actually, uh, Farah as well knows uh, him. And they're talking about the mosque visits and so on. Um, and, uh, and training kind of uh, RE teachers, Muslims training kind of you know civil servants and so on about Islam. And what he was uh, mentioning is that from the feedback that they got after all the training that they were doing to these non-Muslims, the, the biggest impact upon them. And so you can imagine the kind of areas they choose, maybe the interesting nature of the subject, the food that had been offered, you know, this which was my guess, okay, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And what was interesting is that they said the most amazing thing that we saw was the prayer, the observation of the prayer. Now, to Muslims, that's not going to be a surprise, but I just think that we don't get it, though. I really don't think that we get it. That the prayer is a completely natural state of the body. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago about the prostration. It is home. Not for the Muslims. It's home for everyone. Okay? Because every single person declared that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one worthy of worship. And the natural, intrinsic... Innate form of worship is the prostration to the Creator. And so when people see that, I have no doubt whatsoever that something happens to them. If they are pure and they are simple and they are not polluted and they're not the enemy being brainwashed, then a fair person will connect. And that is a reflection of the point that we are spiritual people in principle. We are spiritual people in principle. And you can reach out to virtually everyone. In very simple terms, and, and why would we want to scare or not scare? Why would we want to block that avenue? You might write something or say something on your Facebook or Twitter or on your email or in an, you know a message or a whatever, and you feel the need to say Allah, but you could take out Allah and use the word "God," make it, and automatically the message becomes universal, and people then start to actually reflect. Whereas as soon as the Arab word comes in or the foreign word comes in, or the word that they've got a negative co- connotation with. I mean, how can anyone have a positive connotation with the word Allah? When they see a guy, you know, cutting a guy's head off with a penknife saying, Allahu Akbar. That's all they hear. The bomb before it goes off, Allahu Akbar. Kid, kids, women, dead, whatever. That's, that's a reality that we have to live and work with. The word Allah, unfortunately, is not associated with the positive feeling that it should be. And there will come a time when the Muslims have reached enough social credibility to be able to use the word Allah again. And we're not going to close that door. But I'm saying at the moment, we do need to appreciate that we have to utilize some other words that are more safe, more depoliticized emotions being taken out and people can reflect on. So I do think that that is an important uh, reflection for us all to consider when it comes to our vocabulary. So, Islam kafir, kafir, the Kafirs of two types, an Asli, okay, or a Murtad. Now, the Asli means that they basically have always been a non-Muslim. It goes back to the whole convert-revert debate, you know. So, we all know that, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that every child is born upon the Fitrah, the fitrah is the innate nature that we are born upon. What is that innate nature? I told you already. It's to worship Allah alone, singularly. Okay? And that is what I, and I often, when I used to give dawah uh, uh, on the streets when I was a young man. Okay? Now I'm not told for that kind of behavior. But when I used to, my go-to, my, you know, everyone has a go-to kind of a debate or a go-to kind of argument. My go-to debate was a very simple one. And uh, aimed at Christians, it was specifically aimed at Christians, because um, those were the kind of people that I, I'd get involved with. And it was always the, uh, the, the I'd call it the Robinson Crusoe argument, and it would be this guy who's born on an island, who has zero interaction with anyone ever, and he just basically lives his entire life surviving. And I kind of go through the story by saying that he's going to observe everything, similarly like the Ibra- the Abrahamic story in the Quran looking at the stars looking at the moon then eventually settling on the sun then seeing it disappear and realize something's controlling them <clears throat> and whatever but I'm taking it into more detail I'm talking about the rain I'm talking about watching the seasons develop I'm watching the fruit disappear then suddenly come back again realizing that you're hungry how do you get rid of your hunger you start to put things in your mouth you taste some taste nice some taste wh- whatever so I'm saying if a person was to develop and so on and so forth in our theology two things are going to happen Number one, they're going to recognize that there is one creator and they'd be grateful for that creator. So when the rain would come, they would be grateful. They wouldn't thank the rain because they know that something's controlling the rain. Okay, And so that person, if they die upon that, they will never know that he's called Allah. They will never know that. Okay, And they will never know that there's a prophet, but that's not a problem. And they will never know anything else, but they will die upon Tawheed. Because they've had no other specific information. And this person would be a person in paradise. Okay, Because they die upon Tawheed. Or, this person will not go to paradise because of X, Y, Z, but they never received a messenger. And so they will be then tested again, I talked about that before. The hadith mentioned that people who are mentally handicapped, people who, are, who do not receive the message, etc., then they will be tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a specific test on the Day of Judgment. And if they pass that test, and it will be a simple question, as the Prophet ﷺ said, and hadith is not amazingly authentic, but it's hasan, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell the people to enter the fire. And there will be a fire there and they will leap into it and it will be cool and it will effectively be Jannah. And the test will be passed. And we hope inshallah, that's going to be an easy test for the people because hopefully they will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they will accept such a command without any second thinking. We hope. Now, what I was saying is that do you agree to the Christians? I would say, do you agree that whatever way that you go, however way you kind of point this, where on earth would a necessity to believe that God sacrificed a son to be part of the essential salvation for paradise, where would that come in? Where would that be the part of this, saving this person? And because they technically say it's a must, you have to accept Christ. Okay? Otherwise they, don't, they, they, they consider you damned. I don't want to bore you basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a technical argument and it's a very effective one. My point being is that everyone will recognize that as a simple fitra, we are upon tawhid. And so therefore that's why people, when a person becomes Muslim, they say he reverts because he was a Jew or he was a Christian or he's this, that, whatever. Personally, I don't like the word revert, I'm a convert guy. You know, you are, there's two camps, you're a revert guy or a convert guy, I'm a convert guy, I don't like the revert kind of uh, phrase, but there's no issue in either. What I dislike even more than the word revert is people making an issue out of whether it must be convert or revert. Either way, you reverted back to your ta'heed, fine, or you convert back to something else. That's fine. So, the first type of kafir is the one who was a Jew or a Christian all their life, didn't know anything else, and they accept Islam in a real way. The second type is a murtad. The murtad is the one who was Muslim and then left the faith. Okay? And by apostasy By, you know, by uh, Making shirk of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by, by, I don't know By refusing to pray, rejecting the prayer Saying it's not part of Islam By by being a member of the Kulim Foundation and doing bakwas or whatever, I don't know, all kinds of Going against the Muslims I'm sure we can think of thousands of examples And I could have too much fun, but we want the lesson to Continue out of jail and not in jail So Uh, So, those are the two types, okay? Those are the two types, and uh, it's important because some of the scholars they differed on the ruling between both. Anyway, let's look at what the Hamlis are saying. They're saying that it is an obligation upon the Muslim, um, upon the the, the new Muslim, to have a bath, okay? A ghusl, a complete ghusl. We still haven't really kind of covered that yet, that will come afterwards. Uh, what actually khusl is, but we need to understand the reasons what actually obligate it first. So the first evidence they use, which is at the bottom of page 340 of, of, of al Mumtah, is that the hadith of Qais ibn Asim, that he became Muslim, and the Prophet wasallam then ordered him to wash with water and sidr. Siddhar is lotus, okay? Lotus leaves. So lotus is today's soap. So whenever you see the word lotus in, in, the, in the sharia, and you'll often see lotus, it's, it's interesting because we have no care about lotus whatsoever. It's all over the hadith, but we know, no one actually refers to it. It's only when you die, and they're washing dead body, then suddenly for them lotus becomes important. And that's when they go and they say, I want dried lotus, and they're going to mix it in the water to wash the body with. I want to say that, and you keep consistent. If you're not going to give it a value in the normal hadith, which is fine, by the way, then don't give it a value in the washing of the dead. Because the value that we should give it is that it is shower gel, it is soap, it is whatever. Sidar has no intrinsic meaning other than that. Yes, kafur, which is something which we add when we come to Kitab al is the chapter of funerals, 2030, 2031, maybe. Okay, when we get there. Uh, 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 kafur has a further antiseptic uh, 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 um, value. It, it keeps the body, it prevents uh, immediate decay and pushes away um, insects and things like that, whatever. So, Sidr here, the Prophet ﷺ commanded uh, Qais to wash. Okay? And Sheikh Uthaymeen says, of course, when you tell someone something, especially when the Prophet ﷺ tells someone to do something, Al Amr. The original, the origin, the, 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 the basic position of a command is that it becomes obligatory. All right. So this is their first. When you say wash, then it's not if you want to wash. Wash means you have to wash. Okay. So that's the first evidence. The second evidence is an ugly one. They said that um, when a person uh, becomes Muslim, what have they done? They have purified themselves from the real najasa which is an internal filth uh, uh, of shirk. Shirk itself is a najasa in the, uh, uh, of the, uh, in the in theology. And so ashhadu Allah purifies the inside. And so once you purify the inside, you should also purify the outside. So the batin, the inside is purified. So after the batin, you should also then purify the zahir, the external side as well. Some of the scholars said that no, it is not obligated to make ghusl, and they said to support themselves. They to support themselves, um, and I want to say to you that this is actually the position of Sheikh Uthameen. I'm going to tell you now just to stop the suspense because he's going to go back and forth, go back and forth. In my opinion, Sheikh Amin does not consider it to be obligatory. Muhammad Mukhtar al shankiti does not consider it to be obligatory. Many scholars actually do not consider it to be obligatory. We will come to this. Um, he said some of the scholars, they said that no, that ghusl is not obligatory. And the reason for that is that this command that he gave to Qais was something specific to him. I wasn't something uh, 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 general. Now we will ask the question: How? Who are you to decide? That's a very dangerous road to go down. Okay, this is specific, and this is not, and so on. Well, there's two very interesting caveats, or two very interesting points that would make us feel like that. When the Prophet ﷺ wants to make something general, he normally says it in a general language. So, for example, من أسلم فليغتسل. Yani whoever becomes Muslim, let him then take a ghusl. Did he say that? He never said that. Sallallahu In another hadith, he said, "Manja kumul Whoever experiences or whoever gets to meet Jum'a, Yani it reaches Jum'a, then let him take a bath. So he, whoever of you, min So you know his normal way when he wants to obligate or command the people is that he talks about the people, he says, "You people, all of you, or if the Muslims, or if the people, or if a person." But he went and said something specifically to Pace. Interesting. The other evidence or point would be that, what did he order Pace to do? What did he order Pace to do? Wash himself? Wash himself? What did he order him to do? Come on, we just talked about it. Uh, uh, wash. Wash, wash, wash Just wash himself. Water wash, and wash, wash, and wash himself with water. water and sidr. When you do your ghusl, is it a condition that you have to use cider? When a new Muslim is being told to wash, do we say to him, we've got to find him cider, Or even soap even? Even if we were to make it? No. And so... Some other scholars, they made a wheel of this hadith and they said that maybe this was specific, maybe he was dirty, maybe there was something, maybe X, maybe Y, and, and whatever. That there are indications enough in this narration which would suggest that this is quite a specific one and not a, a general ruling. I think that's interesting. I think personally, that's interesting. He says that, um, but... Sheikh Uthameen goes, you know, it's very difficult to be able to say that one person's statement is not original, uh, 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 general for all people. You open a door, which is yani, problematic. So he's not happy. He, he, wants to prefer, he, wants to pre, he wants to go with obligation because it's safer. And then he goes, he goes, also the scholars, they said, one of the reasons why it is not obligatory is because thousands, hundreds, sorry, uh yeah, thousands, Uh, of the companions, they were not Muslims, all of them actually, and they became Muslim. So when something like that happens in such numbers, where's all the ghusl? Where's all the hadith? Where's all the noise? You know, this is something which is, you know, we see. Now, Shaykh Uthameen responds to this argument himself. He says, uh, naqal, what is naqal? The text, which is transmitted, Yes. Naqal is the, tra- the text which is transmitted. Admul nakal, the lack of transmitted texts of a situation, so the lack of evidence showing that something uh, happened is not the same as texts showing that something didn't happen. This is actually a very clever statement, by the way. In Arabic, in Arabic, the Sheikh says, عَدْمُ النَّقَلْ لَيْسَ نَقْلًا لِلْعَدْمِ This is so clever. I was like, man, that's awesome. Okay? عَدْمُ النَّقَلْ لِيْسَ نَقْلًا لِلْعَدْمِ I'm trying to translate it. If I can translate it, it's awesome. All right? It's the lack of transmitted texts is not a text Indicating lack of action. Does that make sense? No. Okay, let me start again. You, you, you don't understand, or it's poor translation. No, it's difficult to understand. All right. So let me so let me first explain it, then we can work out the translation. So if the companions all didn't do something, and we don't, we can't find any proof of it. That's we we'll call that reality A. All right. We call that reality A. Reality B is a text which says the companions did not do this. Okay? Both are not the same. One's a text which categorically states the companions did not do it. The first one though is a reality which actually could mean that people missed it. It, And also, it doesn't mean that the people didn't do it, just because you never read about it, maybe they didn't didn't tell everyone. And it doesn't mean all of them have to do the action for you to see it. A couple of them might have done it, and the others didn't see it. So there's too many questions to be asked when there is lack of transmitted text concerning an action. It can't be compared in power to a text which indicates no action was done. So that is what I'm trying to explain. So عَدْمُ النَّقَلِ the lack of transmitted text is not the same as a transmitted text which indicates the lack of that action. It's clever, it's deep and it's clever. Um, so, like, did uh, Abu Bakr do like, It's not narrated, that's the problem. Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, Sayyidina Omar, all of these are converts. Okay? And we don't have any evidence to show that they did a ghusl. and that's obviously the, the issue here. Now um, some of the scholars said that if the non if in atha fi he goes, there is one way that we can balance the texts. It only becomes obligatory if the person has done something which in itself would obligate ghusl. So if he is in a state of Janaba. So if he's sexually impure, for example, then he has to make ghusl. Okay, so he has to make ghusl. But if he doesn't, he's not in a reason to make ghusl, then he just carries on. He carries on. You might say, what does carry on mean? What does carry on mean? Okay, well, this is, uh, in fact, let me just finish this off. And others said, never does he have to make ghusl. Yani at all, meaning that, not never, meaning that he doesn't have to make ghusl at all. When he becomes Muslim, when he becomes Muslim, he doesn't have to make ghusl at all, and um, and even if he has, uh, even if he is in a state of janaba, even then he doesn't have to make ghusl. So they are the exact opposite. Okay. They're saying, and it's clever what they said, and it makes a lot of sense actually, they said that if he's in the state of Janaba, that happened before Islam, when he didn't have to make ghusl for it. So it's like, you know, that's something which is valid according to their time. This is like the argument when there's a man and woman, they become Muslim. Okay? And they are married according to Christian law. We do not marry them again. Because that contract is recognized by that, it's a valid contract, we recognize it. And it basically is incorporated in Islam. There's no nikah again. But you have heard that recent times. I heard that people do make people do the, the contract again, which is absolutely not necessary. In fact, it's a bit out of, the, of non-Muslims. They do that, don't they? Renew their vows. Why do people renew vows, by the way? What's the idea behind renewing vows? No? Sure. I don't know. There's some kind of thing there. I don't know, whatever. Now, sheik I mean, he goes, look, He goes, if you're in my honest opinion, it is much safer to be able to to tell the people they have to make ghusl. And really it's about the salah. It's about the salah. Because the scholars, they differ over the issue of salah. You might not be thinking, I don't get this. How can a person who hasn't made ghusl pray? Alright, that's what you might be thinking. Because the answer to that is that you don't need to make ghusl for prayer, you need to make wudu. So, no one is saying that to this non Muslim, that uh, new Muslim, that when he comes in, right, you can just stand and pray. No, no. We're saying, right, let's go now. Let's go and make wudu. Okay. Let's, you know, get yourself all nice and ready for the prayer and, and then pray. So, that's what we're saying. And the class position is that. The class position is that it is not obligatory. It's not obligatory to do. Um, uh, to, to make the non-Muslim, to make the new Muslim make the ghusl. But, Sheikh Uthameen, he said it's safer to assume that we should. It's safer a position to assume it is obligatory. And I personally think that the best solution is that if it is viable, he becomes Muslim at home or whatever, you know, then that's fine. But you know, you get some people who come to the masjid, and I've seen this, and they give shahada. And they're ready. And like, you know, someone says that, right, you know what, he has an ghusl, he can't pray with us. You know? He shouldn't pray because he's not done ghusl. So at that moment in time, I say that we go with the easy opinion that, no, he doesn't need to do ghusl, and just go and make wudu, and show how to make wudu, or, you know, how him make wudu, and then they can pray. And that's my personal <laughs> position uh, on the matter. Okay? You know what's interesting? Some of the, one of the evidences that the scholars used is uh the story of Thumama, Ibn Athal. You know, the, the chief, the chief of the uh, uh, I think it's Banu Hanifa, one of the big Quraishi kind of tribes all right, uh, Quraishi kind of tribes and you know that actually he was one of the people who really wanted to harm the Prophet Sallallahu you all know this hadith um, well you know the hadith in general it's in Bukhari a Muslim, and he wanted to harm the Prophet ﷺ. in fact he killed some of the companions in an expedition and he was like an enemy of the state like proper, anyway some Muslims captured him but they didn't know who they'd caught. And so they brought him to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi They actually tied him up. And they kept him there for like one or two days. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he's walking by, he goes, you know, hello. He goes, Do you realize that, Yani who you've hooked up here? And they're like, we don't know, Ya Rasulullah. They said, this is Thumam, this is, Yani the chief. Yeah, this is good, good, good work, Yani. Mashallah. So, khalas, then, the Prophet ﷺ said, but I want you to look after him. And so... The Prophet ﷺ came to him and visited him every single day and he said to him, Become Muslim. Yani, yani, uh, submit yani to Allah. Submit to Allah. And he said, You've got to be joking, I'm not doing nothing, blah, blah, blah. He just kept refusing. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, Okay, fine. And he kept sending him his own food and, and drink and food and drink and, and looking after him proper. And then he came to him and he said to him again, Become Muslim. The, the, whole, the whole hadith is very nice, very interesting, lots of discussion. Uh, he said to him, You know, uh, what, what, what shall I do with you, the Prophet ﷺ said. And he says that if you kill me, then I am zudamin. The ulama, they differed over what this means. Some said, and this is the opinion that I follow, that I am guilty. I am the one of blood, meaning I've spilled blood. So I'm guilty. This for me fits with what he says afterwards. Okay? And he goes that, ala uh, shakir and if you are uh what Yeah, graceful uh, thingy huh? yeah if you are merciful if you are merciful to me then you'll be merciful to a grateful one huh you are you will be merciful to a grateful one and I can give you whatever you wish and whatever you want, etc, etc, etc. Anyway, he had his little speech. The Prophet ﷺ he said, forget that. And then, then the next day, he just let him go. And he was like really shocked. What do you want? Whatever. I don't want anything. Go. And obviously, you know the story. Then he went, to, he walked off. And as he's walking off, he goes past Baqir. And then what he did is that he stopped his camel and he stopped by the side and he took Ghusl. All right. And I'm mentioning the story because some of the scholars said that the evidence that you must take ghusl is because the Prophet told him to make ghusl. Actually, no. He made ghusl himself, and he made ghusl before he became Muslim. It wasn't something that he was commanded to do after he became Muslim. And so, anyway, he he did ghusl. He became, uh, and then he came back, and he and he, he declared the shahad in front of the Prophet and then the rest, of course, is very famous. You know, he said that before this day, you are the most hated of all of the people. You know, on this planet today, you are the most beloved to me. And then he said to him, sallam, he said to him that I have killed your men, punish me as you see fit. Prophet sallallahu said to him that the Islam erases all the sins. And Hadith is, yeah, amazing Hadith, amazing Hadith. Anyway, so that's the issue of that. Okay, folks, are we good on that? Yeah? Okay, the next thing then is death. Alright, death. What does death mean? Malt. Death obligates ghusl. Meaning, if you die, you have to wash yourself. Is that what it means? Alright, or does it mean that when someone dies, you have to wash yourself? That's also, that is an issue, of course. Alright, that's not the issue here, but that is an issue. That's, that's going to come up in the chapter of janatis. What happens when you wash a dead person? You. Is it obligatory, as many scholars said, that you have to? Uh, have a ghusl and uh, the class position you'll see will be that it's not It's recommended and that's a side point what are we talking about here we're talking about death of a person and then what we do with that person is it obligatory to wash them or not and Sheikh Uthameen he says that the obligation the evidence for this obligation are, are many number one the Prophet ﷺ, when he spoke about the person who, who was in Arafah he was in Hajj and uh, he fell off uh, his camel, and his camel basically kicked him and whatever. His camel kind of bucked him, whatever, and he fell down and he died. The Prophet ﷺ said, uh, Wash him with water and siddhar. And this wash is a command, and so therefore indicates obligation. The second evidence is the hadith of Umm Uh And when her daughter passed away, he said to her, uh, sorry, her daughter. When the, the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ passed away, the hadith of Um Atiyah, she narrates this hadith because she was the one who was doing the ghusl. And so, when, uh, this is Zainab, of course, when Zainab passed away, radiallahu anha, he commanded Um Atiyah to lead a team of women to wash her. And he said to her, Wash her three times, or five times, or seven times, or more than that if you see the need. أو أكثر من ذلك إن رأيتنا ذلك yani if you see the need, then more times than that. Okay? This hadith has an interesting discussion. Some of the scholars said that there is no evidence in this hadith that obligates ghusl. Because if it was an obligation, the Prophet would never have allowed them to make their decision of how many times it should be. Three and five and seven, nine. This is an ugly kind of decision. It's not therefore an Islamic one. Well, we'll say that no, Actually, the only decision that they were told was to work out whether it 's five or seven or is 's three sufficient they weren 't told that yes or no. they were told that at least three times, and that 's of course what we do when we wash and we 'll we'll do that you know proper demonstration and everything in that uh, chapter when it comes um, later so Therefore, there's no problem here at all. Sheikh also uses quite an interesting point. He goes on, also, by the way, if you're not happy with these evidences, then you know what, I don't really care. Because this action of washing the dead is a mutawatir action in this nation. It is known bil It has happened from the very, very beginning and will happen until the very, very end. And so the washing of the dead person is an obligation just regardless. And he said that this is the case regardless of whether a person dies in an accident, or suddenly, or of a sickness, or whether they're young, or whether they're old. So now the question asks, young, uh, washing the dead young one, when does that start? Sheikh Uthameen, he says... Is this the is the is the included? The means the stillborn or the miscarried one. Both of them refer to the same, okay? The miscarried or the miscarried fetus or a uh, stillborn. Stillborn is someone who's a, a child who's actually born full term, but they're they're they are dead, okay? They don't live. So Sheikh Amin, and this is what I want to end with, and it's an interesting and important discussion, okay. He says that there is some detail required. The issue will go back to whether the soul has been breathed or, or into, the, into the fetus. That's what it will be dependent upon. If it has been breathed in. If the Ruah has been breathed in, then what will, we do? what will we do? This is the humbly position. They're very, very clear on this. That we will make ghusl of the child, of the of the fetus we will shroud the fetus, and we will prey upon the fetus as well. All of this, if it has had the soul breathed into it. In terms of the burial, then there's some difference of opinion upon the burial, but we should just continue with it and say it is buried as well. If the fetus has been, if the fetus has had the soul uh, uh, breathed into it. Shaykh Uthameen then says, وَتُنفَخ الْرُوحِ the soul is breathed in tamalahu once 4 months are complete 120 days and the reason for that is because of the hadith of abdullah ibn mas'ud radiyallahu anhu who said that the prophet the messenger of allah وسلم, and he narrated to us and he is the most truthful of all truthful people the most truthful person he said inna ahadakum yajma'u fi that all of you, you are gathered together, you are created in the womb of your mother, for 40 days, 40 days as a nutfah, as a fluid, as a collection of fluid. And then you will be a alaqah for the same period of time. So that will be Uh, The alaqa is like a hanging, something which is hanging and clinging. Okay, from alaq. Yep. Then you will be a. Then you will be a mudga, mithladalik. And then you will be a chewed piece of flesh for the same period as well. For the same period as well. So what's that now? 120. Yes? And then the, the, the angel will be sent to him and it will be ordered with four things to be written. It's provision, when it will die, what it will do, whether it will be happy or sad, whether it will be yani, relieved and, and get success or whether it will be wretched and fail, i.e. go to Jahannam. Okay? And then the soul will be breathed into it. This hadith as I just narrated it is one of the most controversial hadith in the Sunnah and people don't even realize and The reason for that of course those who are my students who have taken 40 hadith of Nawi with me You will know about this this hadith is Reportedly in the minds of all the people reported by Bukhari by Muslim by X by Y in a hundred different books in actual fact this hadith is not narrated in any of those books with this wording. In actual fact, this muhakkid, the one who has done the tahqiq of this book, has done a great job actually, where he found something which I haven't been able to find all my life, or haven't been able to find all my life, which is where this hadith actually does exist. And he found it. He said, Rawahu, And that's why it's important to look at the footnote here. Okay, So this is a study now of a footnote and a proper... Uh, uh discussion and you see the way that he's put it in kind of brackets, yeah in the dash and he wants to make it very clear, right This has been narrated in this form, in this very vari- in this vari- variation of wording by Abu Awana in his book the Mustakhraj Now let me ask you a question. I know that you're not all hadith experts, but tell me if any of you ever heard of this book. Never, I can guarantee you never heard in this book. This is like a few pages of, a, a, of a, a scholar from the Salaf, nothing more. Yani, It's not something which you would expect to know at all. Okay? And the, the, the chain is from Wahab ibn Jarir and Shu'aba and Al A'mash, who said that I heard Zayd ibn Wahab, who narrated on the authority of the Lai ibn Mas'ud this hadith. And some of the scholars, they said that Wahab is, is trustworthy. And the scholars generally narrated from him. And the rest of the chain is with Bukhari. And as you look what he says afterwards, وَأَصْلُ hadith. As for the hadith in principle, the hadith in general, what well, has been narrated by Bukhari and by Muslim and whatever, all with what? دُونَ قَوْلِهِ nutfa. All of that has been narrated without the extra word Nutfa. Without the extra word Nutfa. What's our conclusion? Our conclusion is, folks, that this hadith with the wording that is there, the word Nutfa, is weak. Whereas the wording without Nutfa, without Nutfa, is authentic. You might say, how does that change anything? Well, if you keep it if you keep that wording in, if you keep the word nutfa, it translates as surely each of you is brought together in his mother's womb for 40 days in the form of a fluid, Nutfah. But if you take that wording out, if you actually saying no, that word is not there as it's not, then the hadith will be translated like this, surely each of you is brought together In your mother's womb for 40 days. It is then a clinging object during that same period. Then it is a lump during that same period. Then it is a a chewed flesh during that same clinging object during that same period. Then it's a chewed lump of flesh during that same period. Then the angel comes and then it will breathe into it. So what's the big difference with this word? The big difference is that suddenly life, instead of starting at 120 days, starts at 40. And that's the massive implication of this word. Now what's even more fascinating about this is that, are there any external evidences that would help support this idea that 40 is the actual correct one and not 120? Despite the fact that there is a virtual consensus of All the scholars, not 100% consensus, but virtual consensus of all the scholars, that life starts at 120 days. It's almost like all of them, they ruled upon this er erroneous hadith. By the way, why has the hadith become popular? The reason that the has become popular is because Imam al-Nawawi narrated it. In fact, you know when you have a hadith which is in the principal book, like Bukhari or Muslim, and then someone says, let me make a nice collection like 40 hadiths, or let me write a book on other hadiths, and you start taking it from there. You know because of the nature of the book, it's nice and easy to read, there's no isnah, it's just the text, it's simple, then those books become more popular. So Imam al-Nawawi, 40 hadith Imam al-Nawawi, has been read far more times than Bukhari or Muslim will ever be read. And so the hadith is then memorized from the secondary source and not from the primary. And so if a mistake appears in the secondary, you then refer it back to the original. For you, it's the same. And that's why it's become such a... Even from the scholarly community... And here you go, Shaykh Uthameen, straight off the bat, he said 120 days. He's gone straight off the idea and he quoted the hadith. And in his quotation of the hadith, remember, he's reading this hadith out to his students... When this class is being transcribed, he says the word nutfa, and that word nutfa is not in the hadith, which shows that that's what he believes. He believes that Bukhari and Muslim version of this hadith is nutfa. And this is a very common mistake from the scholars when they quote this hadith. So now we have a question. Is it possible that we can go against all of the consensus of the Muslims from ever to say that life doesn't start at 120? Because by the way, this whole discussion of life starting on 120 is based upon this hadith and a few others. Whereas... There are a plethora of other narrations which suggest that the angel comes and they, they mention 42 days, and other narrations mentions between 40 and 45 days when the angel comes and gives the order for the four things and blows the soul into, into, the, into the fetus. So how are, you going to re- how are you going to reconcile that with the 120 theory? Yeah? A bigger question how are we going to reconcile science with the 120 question? So, I thought we'd do that. I haven't really kind of spent much time on this, but I thought we'd do it right now. So, Shazad here has some pictures. And we're going to see this now, okay? If we look at these pictures here, yeah? Alright, if we look at that, let's just look at this. What is 120, what's 120 uh, days? How many weeks is that? Seventeen weeks, yeah. Let's say seventeen weeks. Okay. Look at three weeks, right? First of all, forty days. Let's let no no. Let's put on yeah. Let's put on forty days. Let's put on our forty day hat. Yeah. Forty day hat is six six weeks. Would you agree? Six weeks minus two days. All right. So in six weeks minus two days, we want nutfa alaqa mudqa. Nutfa is the fluid. Would you agree? that at the very, very beginning stage, okay, at the very, very beginning stage, we have a fluid after a few days. Not first dealt with, yeah? (laughs) Go back to that. Oh, Rasha. What's that? Okay, make this one bigger. This is interesting. Make this one bigger. Bigger, bigger. Okay. Now, if you look at this, the blastocyst the embryo, we, we'll call that, for the sake of argument, the liquid stage. That's a few days, depending upon the scale. Shaz, this one doesn't really show it, to be honest. Okay, give me a no, 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 go to the other one before it. That, that, was, that was okay. Uh, this one? Uh, go to one before that. This one. All right, look at this, yeah? If we assume a few days, is the liquid. If we assume that the which is the clinging, the hanging kind of uh, version, then that would be what? That would be the one at three weeks. It looks like something which is clinging and hanging, Uh, you know, possibly. As for the chewed flesh, then that's when definition of the actual organs are starting, and that's what it looks like. That's four weeks and five weeks and maybe six weeks. I want to ask you a question. Is it possible to explain the development of all three things within 40 days? Yes. Okay? Yes. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it... No, that's, 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 that's just like... You can't, it's because it's in the thingy sack. You can't see. Just look at this one. Now, if you look at uh, the 120 days, look at 16 weeks. Look at 16 weeks. Would you describe 16 weeks as a piece of flesh? What's happened, Shaz? Sorry. Uh, uh, so would you describe 16 weeks as a piece of flesh you wouldn't right uh, or even, even 9 weeks even 8 weeks unless these are completely fake is this fake alright let's go to other 16 weeks yallah what's that no that's rubbish man 12 week fetus looking like that come on bro brave go to another one Goodness me Shaz it's right there Yara. that's it right on this one, no? what's that last one oh, what's the time scale on the last one what's 56 days okay 56 days even Shaz honest to God I don't know what you're doing Yara. <laughs> what did you want, sorry okay what's the last one what's that how many days oh which my god on? <laughs> which, which one did you want now okay alright just stay there just stay just stop oh, okay. right 56 days here. If this is accurate, a picture, would you describe that as a lump of chewed flesh? You wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay, let's go to another program. Let's go to another one. We're talking 120 days, by the way. Want this one back again. No, go to the, a, more, a more kind of visual one. one. Alright, look at look at 11. I don't know. That, that's, that's, again, also rubbish. There's no way that the kid looks like that 15 weeks. Okay. Alright, stick and Just stay on this one. Just stay. Just stop. Okay, just stop. Just stay there. Just read to me because I can't see what's that last one say. 23 what? 52 days. 52 days. Does that 52 days one look like a, a, a lump of chewed flesh? According to our theory, the lump of chewed flesh starts when? 80, 80 days, yeah? Then it remains as a lump of chewed flesh for 40 days. Therefore, between 80 to 120. That's what it looks like at 50, whatever. Anyway, my, my point is is that the scientific reality does not seem to suggest that the development of the embryo fits the 120 model. Now, the Quran is very interesting. The Quran does not give time periods for this, so the Quran is, mashallah, spot on. The hadith in the original Bukhari Muslim also supports yani, the scientific position. The Imam Nawawi version with the weak addition of the word nutfah, that's the one that causes the problem. How do we solve it? It yani, showed that that word is not there and therefore you've got the development of the actual things happening at within the first 40 days. Now the real question is, does that cause a problem or change anything with respect to life? Life, we all agree, and the scholars have an absolute consensus on, consensus on this, that life starts at, at when the angel breathes in the ruah the life spirit. So it doesn't matter whether we argue over 120 days, 40 days, as long as we can agree that when the angel breathes it in, then that's... So you know, like, for example, you see fatwa for abortion. Abortion is impermissible, okay? But you will see that they will say... That if there is some kind of problem or whatever, some kind of major issue, then we will allow it before 120 days. You'll see that fatwa being given. Because they don't consider it to be a living fetus. And they say, after 120 days, it is is categorically impermissible. In my personal position, that ruling applies from 42 days onwards, or 40 odd days onwards. Because the narrations, Yeah, you might say, hold on, what day? 40, 42, 45? Well, those numbers have all been narrated. 45, 42, so it's basically not talking about the specific 40 then it means something, 40 something and leaving it kind of, you know uh, general, and so therefore what do we learn in my opinion, that life does actually start in the early days and therefore in my opinion we will apply the ruling of washing the, 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 the fetus okay after 40 days, now there is no consensus on this, in fact I will go and say to you that anyone who tries to claim a consensus is not understanding the issue. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where Sayyidina where Ibrahim, okay, uh, the son of the Prophet, ﷺ, he passed away, alright? And in this narration which is collected by Imam Ahmed, he was 18 months old. And the Prophet ﷺ in that narration did not pray over him. So he had no Janazah prayed for him. And this hadith has been considered to be authentic by sheik al-Albani. However, Imam Zaila'i, remember that name? Okay, there's a little test coming up. Yeah, I know we've talked about him earlier on as well. The Muhaqq for the Hanafi Madhab. He has collected a plethora of hadith which show that the Prophet ﷺ did in fact pray over Ibrahim. Some mention 16 months, some mention 17 months. There's some difference of it. And the argument that he puts forward is that the narrations which establish that he did pray are more and more authentic than the ones which said that he didn't pray. And that is the one that we should act by. And so therefore, I think it's safer to then act. By the way, don't be too surprised. Why would he not pray over a child? Because in principle, the janazah is prayed for someone who needs it. That's why in general, we don't pray for the one who has done hajj or he's in ihram. According to some scholars, we don't do janazah for the mujahid, for example, because his sins have all been forgiven in, in, you know, on the battlefield. It's for example, the child, for example, is someone who a, can't sin, they have not had the capacity to sin. Why would you? And in, in the Hanafi method, of course, janazah is not even a prayer, janazah is a dua. And so the, the, the dua, the janazah itself being a supplication, would then make it clear in your mind that it's for someone who needs it. And so therefore, a child doesn't need etc. Some scholars re- responded to that, and they said, well, actually, we know from the du'a of the Prophet ﷺ that the du'a for janazah is actually for the parents. The du'a of janazah for the child is for the parents. Allahumma ja'alhu salafan. You know, oh Allah, make him a salaf, yani a, a, a reward in advance yani for the parents. Uh, 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 stored for the parents, so that when they need it, that reward will be opened up, because the patience of dealing with the child passing away. So, this is a complicated issue. It is one which is differed over. It does have ramifications. It has ramifications in all areas, in the emergency contraception, it has in abortion, XYZ, whatever. But, according to this, the correct opinion, Allah knows best, is that the uh, soul could actually be breathed in at, at 45 42 days, therefore, life would start then. Therefore, we should be cautious, and therefore, it is something which is good if we are able to. To then, when if, if something is miscarried and it looks like a human and it feels any more developed, and some of the ulama that's how they look at it. They looked at it. They said, if a miscarriage occurs and you see more human nature to it than non human nature to it, then this itself is an indication it is way past the 40 and therefore you should be washed. Uh, 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 cleaned, put in kafir, and then prayed over. And uh, some said they don't need to. I think it's best to redo it on the safe side. In my personal opinion, I think it's as good uh, to, to stick to this opinion. And it doesn't need to be in a Muslim graveyard. It doesn't need, it can be in the garden, it can be something like this, it can be Dug down. Of course, when we come to Janais, you know, that the ruling of the Qabar is that there is no conditions as long as it's far away from animals and so on and so forth. It's going to decompose anyway. So you're not going to be able to put it in safety forever. But the idea is that it can be kept a simple affair. It doesn't need to be a big thing that, you know, people call everyone around for. But this is staying on the safe side of the opinions of the scholars and anyone who follows the opinion of 120 days. Then, of course, that's acceptable. This is the position. Virtual consensus of all scholars. They are—it's amazing how they all missed the boat on this one. Four imams, scholars, the students afterwards, the madhab—they're all stuck on 120 days. There's a, there, are, there is a position in the hamli madhab that it's one uh, that is four months and ten days, actually a lot longer. That's why they said that the ayah of Quran that someone has the widow has to wait four months and ten days before getting married is because this is the minimum period of life of a child. I don't like that explanation to be honest. But Ibn Hajar said that there's this hadith is authentic can't find the hadith Allah alam. I don't know if that's, that's true or not but that's what I wanted to say that's what I wanted to say that a class position is that um, the class position the class position is that there's no evidence for 120 days whereas Sheikh al position is 120 days the hanbali position is 120 days and Allah knows best okay so those are the various things that were part of this lesson allahu ta'ala alam. questions yes Questions? Yeah. So, if we're saying forty days is the cutoff, um, any miscarriage post forty days um, should therefore have a be buried, etc., etc. We're also into a, the practical reality problem, aren't we? Because at that s- stage, even at eight weeks, we're talking about something which is it's fine. Traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. So, are we then going to make some obligation for people to actually try and find this, in obviously the miscarriage? Are we going to? We no. I don't think so. In fact, I will recount to you a fatwa that was given by the the al Daim, which is the Permanent Council for Fiqh and Fatwa. And they were talking about a child which is at 120 days, which is obviously much more easier, okay, and much bigger and so on and so forth. That is, is that uh, uh, they, they, they basically, they didn't do anything and they just, whatever they did, they disposed of the body or whatever. They didn't do anything for the body. Uh, is there anything that needs to be done now? And they said no. And so I want, what I want to say to you that this is one of those rulings, because of the nature of it not being actually born, okay, and it is like internal and so on and so forth. The strength of feeling, both emotive and the kind of the Islamic imperative, it's almost weaker. It's almost kind of more flexible, because it's not then you'd never see that kind of laxity if it was actually born, stillborn. Or if it, was, if it had screamed once and then died. Okay, which is different, different of course. But uh, that which is miscarried, whatever. So no, you wouldn't put them through difficulty trying to find it. Where has it gone? X, Y, Z, blah. And even I want to say to you that even with the opinion that I hold that life starts at 40 days, I don't believe that it is from the obligations to have to give us to this. My heart is not comfortable with it. My heart feels actually more comfortable. My kind of, my my Salafiness, okay, is that I feel a lot more comfortable with the idea that if it looks like a child or looks like a human, then it's prayed over, it's washed. And looks like, for me, is a physical thing, Mm. a weight thing, yeah, a handling thing, a features thing. I believe that. And I believe that no one will be held accountable on this issue if they make their ishtihad. Because the scholars have already given two clear parameters. 40 days, 40 odd days, and 120. So whether you see it around there, whatever. And I want to say to you also, that yeah, back in the day, they weren't quite counting days in this kind of manner. Not very, very accurate. It was very much an observational kind of thing. They'd see it, they'd deal with it. So that, that's not something we want to teach. You don't want to go out there and teach these kind of things. That's why I said my selfiness. yeah? I don't want to, you don't say that's like a, a position you can actually go and educate people on. There might be a personal health held opinion as a professional. A working professional has to put their trust in their system. Uh, that they, they, they put their trust in their own judgment. Allah alem. It's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. And it's an Ishtihad issue. Yeah. Yeah, any more questions? Online? Yeah. Online. <coughs> I think just a couple of questions to clear the whole issue about uh, a non-Muslim entering Islam. Yes. Uh, about the fact that oh, what about if he was not in the state of he was in the state of Jinabah and he was yeah, uh, you know, not not in, terms of, in a state of major impurity. Yes. So are you, are you, we state the class position is that he actually maybe doesn't. doesn't need to I'm saying back I'm back saying back. it's not obligatory. Yeah. The class position, even if he's in a state of janaba, is that he is. It's not obligatory, but it's better for him. <clears throat> that is the class position. That's Sheikh Al position. That's my position. <clears throat> that would be the majority position, or it would be obligatory according to the others. Uh, the uh, in, term, in terms of in terms of people taking notes. It was the Hanafi, it was the uh, the madhab, and the Hanbali madhab that said it is obligatory for the new Muslim to make ghusl. The Shafiis and the Hanbali said no. The Shafiis and the Hanafis they said no. And and the argument for it is that, in the the sense that it was. He wasn't ruled by the laws of... That would be for the Janaba. For the Janaba, that would be that that's not uh, something which is part of... It's not an Islamic problem. That was his problem as a non-Muslim, and there was no need for it, for that to happen. He would have to make wudu. I'm saying, if we're going to make him make wudu, then khalas, you might as well make him make ghusl as well, and uh, escape from the khilaf, escape from the difference of opinion, because it's not a straightforward issue. There is some difference there. You know, you can see why there's a discussion there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How would you pray from the baby? Most evidence for it. How would you pray over the baby? Most evidence for it. In terms of actually no, the, the actual the actual janaza, so that that's going to come later in that's going to come later in the chapter of janaza. Okay, in the book of janaza. But the quick answer is the evidence for it is the Prophet in the hadith actually saying, "Wasallu ala atfalikum" to pray over your children as well. Some scholars, they you said know, this. N- ha- more is concept, like pray over them in what way? You mean the physical nature of it. Yes. The, the actual physical yes. how yes. you pray. pray. So the praying itself is exactly yes. the same as for an adult. Yes. The child is placed in front, the four takbirat. You're talking about the actual as a prayer. So the child itself, you're talking about a born child. A child who's born? You said if the child dies, yes. then you pray over it. So a child dies, washed, shrouded, put into a coffin, يعني, or put in on a table, whatever, in front of the imam. The imam will then pray for takbirat, salat al-janazah. Yeah, yeah normal janazah. Normal no janazah for us. Everything is exactly the same. Alright? Jazakumullah khair, barakallahu feek, subhanakullahu wa bihanlik, wa shahadhu bin la wa farakallahu wa atubat wa